Welcome back to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me. So last week we talked about facts and what I refer to as the trivialization or even bastardization of the concept of a fact. We talked a lot about the idea that just because somebody says something doesn't make it a fact. It's a fact that they said something, but the underlying substance is not a fact. It is not proven. There's nothing more about it other than it was said, unless you have contemporaneous evidence or something else to support it. And so we talked about that a lot in regards to um, the last NARC, the book by Agent Boreas, a lot of the things that Boreas has said in social media and, and other places. We talked about it with respect to the docu-series, The Last Narc, and really focused on the idea that a lot of the things that people run around calling facts in connection with the Camarena case aren't facts. They're just statements. And in and of themselves, by themselves, that's all they are. That's all they're going to be. We also then kind of applied that to the concept of journalistic integrity. And we looked at some guidelines for journalism, for doing documentaries, and we focused the lens on the last NARC, the docu-series. We looked at, at it through the lens of, of journalistic propriety and integrity, and we looked um, at how, in my mind, Tilwa Russell and Amazon Studios wholly failed to uphold those principles. And they purported to show facts without substance, facts without support, and made no effort to present contrary points of view, which, as we noted then, were clear. They knew about them. They knew other people had said different things. So there was no effort to make a documentary that showed both sides of the story or even hinted that there was another side. So this week we're going to go a little bit um, in, in a slightly different direction, but the same idea. So instead of talking about facts, now we're going to talk a little bit about credibility. And we'll talk about credibility in general terms, and then we're going to talk about it very specifically with respect to somebody we've mentioned before, but haven't really talked a lot about. So we're going to look at Garate Bustamante, okay? And his role in bringing uh, witnesses to the United States, witnesses that were then used by Operation Landa, in particular, Agent Breas, um, witnesses who testified at various trials. And we're going to look at that, the credibility there. Before we do that, let's go back to our normal introductions or our first topic. So we're going to do our Caro Quintero kind of general news update. Uh, a couple of things from this week. Again, not much new on Caro Quintero himself. But remember last week we talked about uh, Quintero Navidad and his um, time served sentence. Well, this week, um, Jorge Castilla... Sanchez, who was also known as El Cos, also known, 
I think in different places as Dos Equis or Doble X. Um, he had been the head of the Gulf Cartel starting in about 2003. And um, he was picked up in 2015. He was captured as part of a of, of a, an operation. Um, oh, wait, he was he was sorry. He was um, arrested in 2012, extradited to the U.S. in 2015. He entered a plea in 2017, and part of the plea, and listen to this, part of the plea was he pled guilty to trafficking at least, at least 10 tons of cocaine and 140 tons of marijuana from Mexico into the United States. Um, most of his stuff, again, was with the Gulf Cartel, a lot of it going through kind of Brownsville and that area. Um, again, he was arrested. He pled guilty. This week, he was sentenced sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison, um, which I think is, is interesting when you compare it to Quintero Navidad, who, again, ended up having about 69 months of a sentence. Not saying there's, you know, there has to be a one-to-one correlation. Again, not making any grand assumptions, not leaping to any conclusions with respect to Quintero Navidad, but thought it was interesting and worth noting this week. So that's number one. Number two, Felix Gallardo. We talked about him last week getting uh, a sentence of house arrest. There were pictures this week of Gallardo at home. Um, You may have seen those, not highly publicized in the U.S., but they are available on some Mexican websites. So that's what we have uh, for the introductions this week. Uh, uh, As a note, we'll have more information, more little details in the newsletter coming out uh, on Saturday. We'll talk about that at, the, that at the end. All right. We're going to talk about credibility for just a second. And then we're going to talk about Antonio Garate Bustamante. Credibility. If you look it up in the dictionary, Credibility is generally defined as the quality of being trusted or believed in. So somebody is credible if they can be trusted, if they can be believed in. A common synonym for credibility is also plausibility. And plausibility says seemingly or apparently valid, likely, or acceptable. What have we tried to do in a lot of these episodes? We've tried to apply rationality, and I call it the scientific process, to a lot of the claims and allegations and statements made surrounding Agent Camarena's case. And a lot of what we've done is looked at credibility, looked at plausibility, okay, If, as an example, if Lopez Romero says, I was in a certain place at a certain time, it's very, very, very hard for me or anyone else sitting in 2022 
to prove that it didn't happen. However, if Lopez Romero then says, I was at a certain place at a certain time in 1984, and as an example, Manuel Bartlett Diaz was there as well. That's where we can start looking at credibility and plausibility. We can look at contemporaneous documents. We can look at schedules that Manuel Bartlett Diaz had. We can look at the location of the meeting. Is that someplace that ever would have been likely for him to be? We can assess other things. We can look at statements from other people. We can compare descriptions of time, place, events, people. And by doing that, we can reach certain conclusions that something is more likely than not, or that something is credible and something else is not. And one of the things that we've worked very hard to show over a number of episodes is the various ways in which Jorge Godoy, Rene Lopez Romero, Ramon Lira, and by natural extension, Hector Boreas, simply are not credible on the more outlandish statements. Okay. Frankly, on a lot of things, but particularly with respect to the big allegations that got them on Amazon Prime in a docu-series produced by Amazon Studios, directed and produced by Toa Russell, okay? It's those allegations that made them noteworthy, and those are the allegations, primarily, that simply are not credible. They are simply not plausible. Now I want to turn to Garate Bustamante, okay? We've talked about him a little bit before, and I'll go a little bit into his background in just a second, but a couple of things to note. So much, so much of the government's case, particularly in the two Zuno trials, Zuno 1, Zuno 2, 1990, and 1992, and the allegations made by Agent Boreas in his book, in his social media, in his YouTube appearances, and in the docu-series through those three witnesses, flows directly. Let me repeat that. Flows directly from Garate Bustamante. There are many people involved in the case who really point to Garate Bustamante as being the linchpin to everything. All right. We're not going to necessarily talk about that directly, but I'm going to want to walk you through who Garate Bustamante was his involvement in Leyenda, and some of the things that he did, and then we can talk about plausibility. And when we start talking about plausibility and credibility, we can look at the witnesses. We can, you know, that being Godoy and Lopez in particular, we can look at another witness we haven't talked a whole lot about. We can look at other claims 
And then we can draw some significant conclusions and ask some really pointed questions to those who ran Operation Landa, those who prosecuted defendants in the early 90s. Okay? So who in the heck is Garate Bustamante? Well, as we've talked a lot about before, it's hard to know things in the the mid-80s in Mexico. So um, we we make some assumptions, all right? And and, um, we'll talk about some things that, that we think we know. One thing we know for sure is that uh, Garate Bustamante was a former Mexican police officer. He may have been a SWAT commander. Um, We also know from his own words, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes, but we also know that he was involved with the drug traffickers at various times. Um, There are at least a couple of reports of DEA offices or couple of reports from DEA offices in Mexico that reported Garate being involved in the marijuana traffic as early as 1983. And certainly there's a good deal of possibility it was uh, well before that. Um, in 1985, he became, uh, he, well, he was sought after um, by the Mexican government. Um, and there was at least one indictment against him for a variety of unspecified but drug-related charges. In November of 1985, uh, so this is, you know, again, after Fonseca had been picked up, Caracantero had been picked up, um, there are at least some reports that identified Garate at that point as kind of the head of the Fonseca organization, such as it was with Fonseca in in jail. Um, In um, March of 1986, it's alleged that he was arrested in Guadalajara um, and that there was an indictment of... um, relating to the smuggling of some 500 kilos of cocaine. In May of 1986, he admitted to assisting aircraft landings to smuggle another 500 pounds of cocaine into, uh, oh, wait, 500 pounds of cocaine per load in each of these landings into Veracruz and Colima. So, um he ends up going, starts working on the Cameron case in about 1996. Um, he's also involved in an incident with former DE agent Joe Cortez. And I, I don't want to get into too much details on this incident, but basically what happened is Garate's in a car with Cortez. They're pulled over. Cortez doesn't have any ID on him. Police who pull him over apparently knew who Garate was, knew that he had worked with Fonseca. That raises their suspicions. They search the trunk and they find, at least according to some reports, a semi-automatic rifle and an Uzi. Uh, The police didn't believe that uh, he was DEA, Cortez that is, 
apparently he was taken in, roughed up, um, and was in, ended up being released and almost immediately sent back to the United States. Shortly after that, or kind of around that time, Garate is also sent to the United States. Um, he also, Garate says that uh, he had to leave Mexico because the traffickers had put a half a million dollar bounty on his head. In any event, um, he starts working with Leyenda in about uh, 1986, 1987. It's a little bit un- uncertain, but definitely starts working with them and then definitely starts working with um, Agent Breas when Breas gets involved with Leyenda in 1989. He gets interviewed in 1992 by um, the Los Angeles Times. Um, And I want to read you some of what he says or what's said in the the article. This is by uh, a reporter by the name of Harvey Weinstein who does a um, really good job of explaining things. And um, he says that Grate, Grate had said that he was paid 4000 a month for his DEA work, sometimes by check, sometimes in cash, um, which seemed a little bit interesting to me. Uh, so, again, keep in mind, Grate, you know, 4000 a month, we're not sure for how many months, but we know, or at least we have reason to believe it was for several years. So think about that. Um, 4000 a month in 1985, 86, 87, 88, probably not too bad. The LA Times article also says that um, he wore... This is a quote. He wore a blue work shirt, black jeans, white tennis shoes, a gold chain, and a golden diamond bracelet during the interview. Seems a little interesting. Um, You know, golden diamond bracelet. um, Not somebody obviously living in poverty. The article also says, propped up against one side of his bed is an M16 assault rifle. On the other is an AK-47. Still another semi-automatic rifle was spread out in parts on the bed. He says, quote, this is the price I pay for the work I do. Again, think think about that in the context of, of who he's working for at the time and what he's supposed to be doing. Um, we're going to talk about his role with Machine in just a second, but um, one thing he says is that he would sell his house in Arizona if he has to, to pay the people who picked up Machine. And again, I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, this is a guy who fled Mexico, right? Apparently had a price on his head, flees Mexico, and somehow he has... Um, an M16 assault rifle, an AK-47, another semi-automatic rifle. He's wearing a gold and diamond bracelet, and he's talking about selling his house in Arizona if he has to. Again, in and of itself, does this say anything? No. But start to think about it a little bit. 
Okay. Let's say that he has to flee Mexico for one of a variety of reasons, but the most important of which is his benefactor, Ernesto Fonseca, is now in jail. Okay. So he's in a position where the traffickers can't support him anymore. The police don't like him. He's arrested for smuggling drugs. He's indicted in Mexico. And then he's found hanging out with DEA agents. So he has to flee the country. And then he comes to the U.S. and he gets paid a lot of money. Okay? I mean, again, I'm not talking, you know, millions of dollars, but he's getting paid a lot of money. Enough that he can have a gold chain. Enough that he can have a house in Arizona. What does that say about his credibility just from that point alone? Now, we talked in the past about Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machain, right? And Dr. Machain, and I know it's supposed to be Dr. Alvarez, um, according to some folks, but I've always referred to him as Dr. Machain, so I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, Dr. Machain was a gynecologist in Guadalajara who apparently hung around with the drug traffickers and likely was somebody who administered medication, drugs, vitamins, whatever you want to call it, to the traffickers when they partied and their parties got out of control. One of the few things that Medrano said in the last NARC that I agreed with is he said, you know, when, when the traffickers partied, they partied hard. These weren't afternoon get-togethers. These were weekend or week-long get-togethers. So Machine hung around them. And apparently, from all reports, you know, he was a guy who liked hanging around the drug dealers, liked the pretty women, liked the lifestyle, etc. We know, and because we've talked about in the past, that Machine was kidnapped, taken, arrested, whatever you want to say, by bounty hunters um, from Mexico taken to the United States and dropped off in El Paso. Lots of questions about how that all came to be. We've talked about it before. You know, was uh, was Breas acting on his own with Garate? Was Breas authorized from folks in the DEA? Um, you know, we can talk about that again later. Lots of credibility issues, as we've talked about before, where Breas says... He was given the the okay, but the timeline doesn't quite add up. Garate talks about the fact that he was um, one of the ones who kind of coordinated the uh, the abduction of Machine and DA officials at the time Machine was was brought to the United States seemed to have no. Um, no problem saying that Garate was the go-between in arranging the abduction. Um, he's referred to by unnamed DEA officials in various uh, press articles in the United States, most of which come from the LA Times, as a longtime agency asset, um, that he was both an informant and an operative. Um, and... You know, most of the 
the key elements of the actual abduction of Machine itself were, that Garate talks about were verified by the DEA. So, you know, no reason to suspect that he wasn't involved in it. You know, Mexico's um, attorney general uh, at one point said they were going to issue an arrest warrant for Garate as being the ringleader of the abduction. And, um, you know, again, Garate clearly intimately involved in Machine's abduction, intimately involved in um, working with Operation Landa, working with Agent Boreas, working with the the U.S. Attorney's Office, primarily Manny Medrano, John Carlton. He's also the one who brought up witnesses, okay? Brought up number a number of witnesses, lots and lots and lots of potential witnesses, all of whom were getting money, okay? And we're going to talk about this a little bit at the end, um, but we don't know. How many witnesses? We don't know how many were um, credible witnesses, how many weren't, how many said things that would have helped the defense. We don't know any of this, all right? But we know that he brought up a number of witnesses that were interviewed by the DEA, interviewed by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And we know in particular that he brought up four. They call it, you know, they refer to Jose one, two, three, and four. And those are Jorge Godoy, in, in no particular order, by the way, Jorge Godoy, Renee Lopez Romero, Ramon Lira, and then somebody that we're going to talk about in a minute, Enrique Placencia Aguilar. Okay. So Garate, Mexican police officer, involved with the traffickers, Involved with the Mexican police, involved with the DA in Mexico, comes up, and you ask yourself, geez, I don't remember him testifying at any of the trials. And you know what? He didn't. Didn't testify at all. And this is one of the things that I find really fascinating. Um. In May of 1990, Manny Medrano tells the court that Garate may in fact testify. Okay, But he doesn't testify in that trial, doesn't testify in the other trial, doesn't testify in any trial. The man who orchestrated everything, nowhere to be found. So if you think that that's interesting, you say, wait a second. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't he testify? And if you go to Eclipse of the Assassins, which we talked about last week, and you look at page 429, it says, this is a quote, a direct quote from Hector Bereas. Antonio Garate Bustamante, one of my paid informants, was never put on the witness stand due to credibility issues. He was found not to be credible on numerous serious issues, and for that reason, 
the prosecutors chose not to use him. Okay? Isn't that interesting? Now, listen to this. Here it goes on. Berea's elaborated. Garate kept close ties with the drug lords and was always loyal to Fonseca, who had been best man at his wedding. DEA did not trust him as far as we could throw him, Bereas told us. Garate, as a lot of informants that we had, played both sides against the middle, taking money from the DEA and also from the drug lords. We knew their game and we used them as we needed. Garate, for his part, was very careful in locating and recruiting witnesses and was a walking encyclopedia of who was in the drug world. After he relocated to the United States, Boreas kept a permanent wiretap on his phone. So, so, let's think about this. We know, we know with certainty that Godoy... Lopez Romero and Ramon Lira all were brought to the United States by Garate. Okay? He's the one who introduced Operation Landa and the U.S. Attorney's Office to those folks. They then become the foundation for the case in Zuno 2. They are accepted. Their statements, the statements of Godoy, Lopez, and and Lira are accepted in the last narc like they come from the mount on high. Okay? And yet, they're brought to the United States by somebody that Berea says couldn't be put on the stand because he wasn't credible. And that the DEA didn't trust as far as they could throw him. How in the hell does that make any sense? Moreover, let us not forget about Zuno 1. Remember, who was the primary witness against Ruben Zuno Arce in the Zuno 1 trial? That was Hector Cervantes Santos. Who brought Hector Cervantes Santos to the United States? Who introduced him to Operation Leyenda? His former partner in the Mexican police, Antonio Garate Bustamante. Why didn't Cervantes testify in Zuno 2? Because he wasn't credible. So, Zuno 1. You have a non-credible person, Garate Bustamante, offering up a witness who turns out to be not credible. And then Landa turns back to the not credible Garate and says, I can only imagine, oh my God, we cannot put Cervantes on the stand in Zuno 2 because he's not credible. By the way, we don't think you're credible either, and that's why you're not testifying. But can you get us any other witnesses? 
And suddenly, mystically, magically, while the appeal is pending, and in the case of Lopez Romero, only days after the new trial is ordered, so there's going to be a Zuno too, suddenly, suddenly, Godoy and Lopez Romero magically appear on the scene and can testify against Ruben Zuno Arce. Really? And again, let us not forget, let's not forget at all that almost everything, almost everything that's said by Agent Boreas in the last NARC, in his book, in the docuseries, almost every allegation in the docuseries has at its foundation Statements by Godoy, Lopez, and Romero. Sorry. (laughs) Godoy, Lopez, Romero, and Lira. Remember, it's the three of them in the cemetery with the giant cross and all the other imagery. But there's more. There's more. So... Enrique Placencia Aguilar. He was he testifies in Zuno One, testifies in June of 1990, testifies to having been in the Mexican military. Um, he was also a bodyguard for Fonseca. He was at certain things. Honestly, he was um, in large respects testifying against Javier Vasquez Velasco, who was um, a co-defendant in Zuno 1. Lots and lots of discussion about his knowledge of the Vasquez Velasco family, who all was involved, where they were, different meetings, etc. But, 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 here's what's important. In his testimony, he says, hey, I was at one of these conspiracy meetings, you know, One of the the many, many meetings where it was alleged that they were talking about picking up either Camarena or the DE agent who was uh, giving them trouble. And Placentia says, by the way, Garate Bustamante was also there. Okay. So now your incredible witness was also at conspiracy meetings, but not only is he not charged with conspiracy, like Javier Vasquez Velasco or Ruben Zunarce, he's paid by the DEA to help convict those other defendants. So that's that's one thing. You know, okay. Placentia says he was there. There were about a dozen men. He was one of them sitting there amongst the drug lords. But there's more. At that particular meeting, it's alleged, Placencia says, not at trial, but he had said previously that um, he had seen Felix Rodriguez there. Okay. We talked about Felix Rodriguez, talked about how it doesn't exactly make sense. 
et cetera, et cetera. But Placentia says, hey, there's a, a Cuban there, never comes up. You know, Garate never says anything about it. Um, then if you look, go, go back to Eclipse of the Assassins, you get another one of these classic situations. So, remember, go back. Brea says he, being Garate, was found not to be credible on numerous serious issues. And for that reason, the prosecutors chose not to use him. Then he says, Garate did, nonetheless, recall the one meeting attended by Rodriguez in which Camarena's picture was passed around. Okay, so so you got nothing that says anything but Berea saying, oh, yeah, by the way, he did remember the one. To say that strains credulity would be an understatement. And and here's the the comparison I want to make. We've talked about this several times. Remember that uh, Sergio Espina Verdeen, who was in the the MHIP or and or DFS? He's picked up. He's taken to Mexico City, and he's interrogated. And in that first interrogation, he says, "Pretty straightforward." Miguel Felix Gallardo was not was not at Lope de Vega when. Agent Camarena was interrogated. DEA's there. They hear it. They see it. They go back to their hotel or to their, you know, wherever they were staying, come back the next day. The Mexican government says, oh, by the way, here's an affidavit that he says overnight he remembered that Felix Gardo actually was there. And I've used that example several times to say, come on. Nobody believes that. That's not credible or plausible in the slightest. And yet, Boreas does the exact same thing. Oh, yeah, Garate remembers. Not only Garate remembers, but trust me, Garate remembers, because I'm the only one who knows that he remembers. Makes no sense. So, what do we know? We know that Garate is not credible. So not credible, the government won't even put him on the stand. But they'll use him for years and years and years. We also know that he helped put at least four of the major... Uh, people talking about uh, the the Cameron case in the trials on the stand. Cervantes, Placentia, Godoy, Lopez Romero. And we've talked ad nauseum about the fact that those four stories don't go together. They don't make sense. They contradict each other. 
the meetings don't align, the people there, the timeline, nothing matches up. So I submit to you that what you have is you have an, a non-credible person providing non-credible witnesses that the government relied on completely. The government went to trial and convicted defendants based on the testimony of Cervantes and Placencia, Placencia Aguilar. And then when Cervantes was found not to be credible, in Zuno 2, they don't put Cervantes on the stand. They don't put Placencia Aguilar on the stand. They sure as hell don't put Garate Bustamante on the stand. But they put Godoy and Lopez Romero, who again, mystically, magically appear at the right time. And that's who they're going to rely upon. Despite the fact that the incredible person who gave them the incredible people, witnesses of Cervantes and Placentia Aguilar, is the same one who provided Godoy and Lopez Romero. Tell me that doesn't stink. Whether you think... the defendants convicted were guilty or not, there's something seriously wrong with that process. There's something else I want to mention real quick. So I told you that um, Placentia had testified in Zuna 1 primarily with respect to Javier Vasquez Velasco. The other thing that he testified a lot about was the La Langosta incident. He'd been at La Langosta... Um, he was leaving, allegedly, right about the time that Walker and Radelat were entering. Um, they had a diagram and pictures of La Langosta. He talked about who was there, where they were sitting, how there were drug lords, in the bosses in one area, bodyguards in another area. He gives a lots of, lot of names. He also admittedly says there are some people he doesn't remember. But you know whose name he doesn't mention? El Chapo. And have you noticed, if you start, not at the trial, but things that have come out after the trial, and then things said at, um, in the last NARC, and things said in, in other media, all of a sudden, El Chapo is everywhere. Godoy and Lopez are talking about El Chapo. El Chapo now goes from being, you know, a, a, a low-level fixer, maybe at best, to somebody who actually is in the room when Cameron is being interrogated, somebody who was directly involved in La Langosta. And I'm not saying he wasn't, but how is it? How is it that it, Placentia Aguilar testifies, talks about who the drug lords were, talks about who the bodyguards were, doesn't mention El Chapo at all, and the only people that Godoy and Lopez can remember are El Chapo? I think the answer to that is obvious. El Chapo gets pressed. El Chapo gets you on a YouTube channel. El Chapo gets you in a podcast. El Chapo gets you money. It's another example where these people are not plausible. There is no credibility for the things they say that don't have some contemporaneous support. And do not, do not tell me that they support each other. That's like saying that Jordan and, and Berea support each other, and therefore it's great. And, and the, the, the myth, the myth, 
that they came to the United States. Godoy and Lopez and were separated and all of a sudden said the same thing is BS. And I don't care if it's true. I don't care if they were separated. They were together in Mexico. We know that. Look at the timing of things. Look when they came to the United States. This doesn't, it, 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 there is no way their testimony wasn't coordinated in some way. And we're not even talking about the allegations that have been made with respect to Godoy and Lopez, with respect to providing evidence guiding their testimony. Some might even say suborning perjury. One of the things that we don't know, in kind of summary here, one of the things that we don't really know is to what extent Garate Bustamante's actions infected the entire process. And by that I mean when we're talking about the witnesses brought up, we can find documentary evidence that says that there may have been hundreds of witnesses brought up, but we don't know. We don't know how much money was spent. There's not an audit. You know, we already saw that uh, you know, from earlier today, we talked about the fact that Garate says, ah, sometimes I'm paid by check, sometimes by cash. How did, doesn't that just seem weird? You know, does, does Hector show up on an, a random basis with a, a bag of money? I, I, you know, it, it's something just not right. We don't know how much money was given to Kim, we don't know how much money was given to Godoy and Lopez and Lira and Placencia Aguilar and Cervantes. We don't know how much money was given to all the witnesses who didn't testify. We don't know who didn't testify and why they didn't testify. But what we know is this incredible person, this person that the DEA couldn't, didn't trust as far as they could throw him, according to Boreas, who was so incredible that they wouldn't put him on the stand. He's the one who provided these witnesses. He's the one who funneled them to, to Operation Landa. He's the one who funneled them to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's the one who provided Godoy and Lopez that forms the foundation for virtually everything you see and hear and are told to believe in the last narc. And how many times did you hear his name in the last narc? Yeah, that's a rhetorical question. All right. That is... That is it for for today with respect to Garate. Uh, we'll come back to him in different ways. We're going to talk about some of the witnesses in the next couple of weeks. And... We're also going to leave a little bit of time and availability for, you know, if new things comes up, come up with respect to Felix Gallardo or with respect to Carl uh, Quintero and his extradition. So we'll be a little bit flexible over the next couple of weeks. 
Um, again, keep in mind, newsletter starts next week. I'll be um, putting a link on the website so that we can start getting um, email addresses. If you want uh, to get the, the newsletter, and it's going to be a one-pager, okay? It's like 10 things you need to know that happened last week. Boom, you can look at it. You can see the things that are important and, and move on with your day. Coming out every Saturday, starting next Saturday. If you want it, um, Llewellyn, L-U-E-L-L-E-N, writing at gmail.com. Send me a request. Um, you can also go to jacklewellyn.com on the website. We should have a link either today or very soon. So that's coming. The new website looks phenomenal almost done and uh, some other really fun, interesting things coming. Thanks again for uh, listening today. Hope to uh, hope that you're with us next week and have a wonderful week. Enjoy the start of fall and everybody be safe.